This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. The interesting thing about holistic nutrition is that we learn about life stages and how to positively impact your health with food, through food, at each life stage and moving into that next stage of life. And having more of a focus on how you can prolong your longevity or prolong your life based on looking at your family history. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll learn all about protein powders. We'll hear how to treat an ACL injury. We'll discuss lifestyle choices for longevity. And lastly, we'll talk about hosting for guests with food allergies or preferences. But first, a little bit of business. Today's show is brought to you by Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Very good, Jamie. Thanks for having me again. So my son, I have the reverse issue. I'm trying to slim down, but my teenage son is trying to bulk up. And so we find ourselves with various protein powders in the house. And it struck me that there's differences between the different types and there's pros and cons. And I thought it would be great if you came on the show today and and we could discuss all the various differences between the protein powders, right? You know, the, the thing about protein, there's a lot of misconceptions about protein out there. Yeah. For example, I know there are people who will say, I don't want milk protein because I have intolerances or I have allergies to milk. Okay. And in all fairness, there are people who are really allergic to milk, and by that I mean they're allergic to the protein itself, right? Okay. yes. It's just like there are people who are allergic to soy. Right. There's people who are allergic to rice. Right. There's people who are allergic to, to peanuts, right? But a lactose intolerance is pretty prevalent. I mean, yeah, but I want to clarify that. Lactose intolerance and milk protein intolerance are two different things. Okay. Right? Lactose intolerance in milk itself, the, the liquid stuff that people drink, there's a sugar in there called lactose. Right. And as we grow older, the enzyme that we produce to break down that sugar gets less and less and less. So what happens is that people, because of that lack of breakdown, that lactose itself is broken down by bacteria in the gut, and, and that in itself leads to bloating, etc., etc. So those are lactose intolerant. But you can get milk where they take the lactose out. Right. 
Yes, okay. I know. Now, the reason people want to take milk protein as opposed to milk itself, you can get milk protein where they've taken out the lactose. Right. Okay? They've taken out the fat, and they call those milk protein isolates. Now, you also have something called whey protein isolates, which is basically whey protein, which is the liquid that's left over after you make things like yogurt and cheese. Right. Again, they've taken the lactose out, and they've taken the water, etc., and, and whatever fat there is, it's all gone. So, and you end up with whey protein isolate, right? Okay, so, but, but whey, like you just said, the whey, you know, whey comes from milk, right? So, if they're both taking out the lactose, what's the difference between a milk protein and a whey protein if they're both originally from milk? You have to remember, in milk, there's a whole bunch of different proteins. Whey protein is just the stuff that's left over after you milk, after you make um, yogurt and cheese. Ah. So there's a lot of protein that's still in there, but there's a lot of protein that's already taken out, right? That's in cheese, etc. right? The fraction that's left... In the past, they used to toss that down the drain. And then rather than waste it, they had to come up with something else to do with it. So what they've done, they've put it into protein and with marketing, etc. It's one of the, the proteins now that they use to promote for bodybuilding, etc. Yes. But to me, the superior product is really the milk protein isolate. Why is because, that? Because you have all of the proteins that you started off with in the milk. The only thing that's missing is the water, the lactose, right, and the fat. Those are the three components that are gone. So you have something with all of the goodness of milk. Now, when we talk about protein, one of the things I want to talk about is biological value, meaning how easy is this protein to be digested? And absorbed into the body for the nutrients. absorbed into the body, right? We all know the ability to digest protein is dependent on the type of enzymes that you have or, or the amount of enzymes that you can produce. Yes. For example, I know bodybuilders, for example, would want three to four hundred grams of protein a day. Okay. Right? Yep. Now, if you were to take that from, say, getting it from, um, say, chicken breast, right? Chicken breast at best is about twenty percent protein. So, in order for you to get a hundred grams of of protein into your body, you need to consume about uh, five hundred grams of chicken breast. Okay. Now, most people I know can't consume 500 grams of chicken. You should come to my house, sir. I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you only get 100 grams. Yeah, no, I know. If I take milk protein isolate or whey protein isolate, that's roughly about 90% protein. So for you to get 100% 100 grams of protein, you need to consume roughly roughly about 110, 120 grams of milk protein isolate, which you can get that in probably three scoops of protein powder. Right. Okay. But the million dollar question is that even though you can consume it, does your body break it down? That's where we run into trouble. A lot of people cannot produce enough, especially as you get older, enough digestive enzymes to break it down. So what I would suggest is if you're going to be consuming that type of quantity of protein, you should add uh, digestive enzymes to it. And there are a lot of protein powders out there that have digestive enzymes in it, right? Or if you don't, you can also get some digestive enzymes to uh, aid in the digestion. Are, are those in capsule form? Are they liquid? No, it's not a liquid. It's in capsule form, right? But there are some people add digestive enzymes to their protein powders to help to aid in digestion, aid in bioavailability. How would you know if you needed the enzymes? Is there a way to tell or is there a test? You, you can't really tell because, well, sometimes people can tell because when you, it's like anything else, you eat too much of it, you might get the bloating, right? right? Uh-huh. And if you do get the bloating and if it's a whey isolate that you're using, it's probably because you're not producing enough digestive enzymes naturally producing it. So you add back. Now, if you're a youngster like your son, 
son, he probably has no problem. No, he doesn't. But if you're older like me and you, yep. right? Well, I should say me, not you. No, no. <laughs> We're in the same boat, my friend. <laughs> you, you need to add add a little bit of digestive enzymes to help break it down. Now, the reason I bring that up, age first, for example, is because as people get older, we eat less meat. Yes. We As we eat less meat, we but we need the protein because protein is one of the most important components in our body. For example, yep. every time you have an allergic response, all those immunoglobulins, protein antibodies protein yep right building up muscle mass protein all the enzymes in your body protein right and for people who are getting if you're ill and you're recovering from illness you need that protein right yeah no and and and, you know i i think you're right i think people are eating less meat Mm -hmm. but i think they're eating more beans more legumes more tofu they're getting it from vegetable based you see here's the problem with vegetable based protein most of these vegetable based proteins are incomplete incomplete protein by that i mean most people unless you know i mean there's really 20 common amino acids that you find in your food Right, and your body roughly needs those twenty common amino acids. Of that, there's nine of them that are what we call essential amino acids. And the only reason we call them essential is because the body cannot convert the non-essential, can't convert non-essential amino acids into these essential amino acids. Right. Okay. So you, the only way you can get them is from the diet. All right. A lot of plant-based proteins do not have the essential amino acids or enough of them. Right. Right. So you have and to eat. You, you have to eat other things with them to make sure you're right, getting a full protein. Yep. But that's not the only issue. You have to look at how much of the essential amino acids you get. The analogy uh-huh. I'll use. Let's say I I have to build a brick wall. You love my brick wall. I, I do. I, I do. That. I do. But, <laughs> but I, I, the, the brick itself is um, what we would call non-essential because I can give you the sand and you can take the sand to make the bricks, right? Yep. And the sand is what we would call essential, right? However, it takes energy and it takes time to take the sand and make it into the bricks. So if I was to give you the, the bricks itself, everything proceeds a lot faster. And, it's, and if I give you enough bricks, you can build a stronger wall. It's the right. same thing with the body. If I give you a lot of the essential amino acids and I give you the, the non-essential amino acids all at the same time, you have the basic building blocks of every protein known to man. And the reason I, I am a proponent of milk proteins, right, is because yep. as you babies, in order for them to grow, they have to get the, all the amino acids. And guess what? For the first year or so of life, they live on milk. Yes. And all, if you, so if you think about it, all of the milk provides them with all of the amino acids that they would need to, to make every single protein known to man and some, all right? And it provides in a form that's easily digested so you can break it. Your body has the enzymes to break it down. All right. And so this is why I am a proponent of milk. Now, in all fairness, there are people who have allergies to, say, casein, have allergies to certain milk, milk proteins. And for those people, I would say, you know, it, it sucks to be you sometimes, but... Yeah. <laughs> you, if you, you, if you can't have them, you can't have them, right? Yeah, you just can't have them. Now, I know there's also a lot of um, protein drinks out there where, where, which are recommended for the elderly. Right. Right. Yep. I am not a strong proponent of those. And the reason I say that is I look at them. They have a lot of sugar, but forget the sugar for an instant, right? You can get them right. not sweetened with sugar. Yep. The quality of the protein that's in there is usually plant-based, Yes. Right? So it's not a high-quality protein, right? Or soy base. Is, uh, soy base is not, not a bad protein, but again, you don't have the same amount of amino acids you'd get with milk, 
right? Okay. So I would suggest for people who are elderly and they want to get more protein into, into their body, just go and get some high-quality milk protein isolate out there. And you can look at the ingredient list to see how much milk protein isolate is in there, and that will give you a good idea of which ones you should be getting. Yeah, and, and you know, I, you were saying that some people just can't digest it. Are there any other concerns? Is there anything you would be concerned about with with a milk-based protein? For, no. I mean, if you... For people who... People can digest it. What, where it is, where the issue is, is that it's a quantity. If I give you two grams of milk protein, you can digest it. Right. If I give you 100 grams in one sitting, you have a problem with digestion. Right? So those are the reasons why you'd probably want the, the digestive enzyme to help aid you. And, people, and in all fairness, the people who take that type of quantity are really the bodybuilders. Right. Your jaw average is not going to do that. Now... One of the reasons why you want protein is that protein keeps you filled up. So people who are trying to lose weight, yeah. you take a protein shake in the morning, right? You are a lot you feel a lot fuller throughout the day. Of course. Right? Yeah. Calorie wise, gram per gram, protein and sugars have the same amount of calories. Gram per gram. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, you, for one gram of protein, you get four kilocalories, and for one one gram of sugar, you get four kilocalories. Hmm. Same amount, right? Okay? But the difference is, protein keeps you filled fast, um, longer. And yes. secondly, not all calories are the same. Of course not. Right? Yeah. So you know, and so you you tend to eat less with, with protein. So it's a good way of of starting the, the the road down to weight loss. But I don't want to think everybody should think that taking protein is the only way to lose weight, right? But unless you have your exercise components to go with it. But I mean, most people, bodybuilders, for example, will use a lot of protein, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the proteins I would, I would have a lot of other people use is things like collagen, right? Collagen is high in things like proline, hydroxyproline, again, for beauty, the skin, Yes. Right. That's one of the things that they should consume. Now, collagen, another form of that is um, gelatin. So you can get it from there. When we were talking about the weight loss, Mm -hmm. is there a distinction between the proteins? Like you're recommending protein to assist with weight loss because you you feel fuller. Leaving aside everything you've said before, is there any other issue as to which protein you should have if you're trying to lose weight? I always like to recommend the milk protein isolates. And the reason for that is because it's a complete protein. It has all of the amino acids that you'd ever need and you're taking it not just because you want to keep full but the body has uses for all of these amino acids now in all fairness there are people for vegans for example can't take uh, milk protein for ethical reasons uh, or whatever ethical reasons and for those people there are plant-based proteins out there that you can use and if you combine them properly you will get all the essential amino acids but usually you don't get the same balance that you'll find in a milk protein isolate right and i know everybody out there is using the whey protein isolate but i think the milk proteins are superior to the whey just because the whey proteins they've taken out a lot of the other proteins already when they're making the cheese and, and so on. Yep. So things like the lactoglobulins, et cetera, are all gone. You don't find those in the whey proteins. Are there differences? Or would you recommend one protein over another for men or women? No. I, I would say both of them, looking at it strictly from a dietary point of view, yeah. looking at the completeness of the protein, the availability of the amino acids, the milk proteins are, are your best bet. All right. 
Okay. What about people who are recovering from illness who may need the protein to help them recover? What would you recommend there? Definitely your milk-based proteins, all right? Now, there's other types of protein that, that people can use is like albumin, which is from eggs and so on. But most people use the milk-based protein because it's easier to get at. It's commercially available. But let, let me explain why I like yeah. milk-based for recovery, even for people illness. Like, for example, if you have cancer, for example, yeah. other type of illnesses, their digestion is off. They don't feel like eating, but they need the protein. You can't sit down and consume a whole steak. And even if they could get that much meat into them, you know, in order to get 100 grams of protein, as an example, you, you need to eat 500, 500 grams of, say, chicken breast. Right. That's a lot to consume. Particularly so, if you're under the weather, I agree. Yeah, yeah. the easiest way is to, is to drink a protein shake. And that's why I like the milk protein ice. And more importantly, it has a full complete amino acid profiles that you would need. And this is the time when the body needs the protein. This is why when you, you're looking at people who are sick, they waste away. And the reason they're wasting away is because they're not getting the nutrition, so they're not getting the protein. And the body then basically takes the protein from the muscle. So it catabolizes the muscle, meaning that it chews away, it eats up its own muscle in order to provide the protein. So what you're trying to do, supplementing protein, is to prevent that catabolism of the muscle, the breakdown of the muscle. The best way of getting it for me is to take the milk protein isolates. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. You'll come back again? Definitely, Jamie. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn all about treating an ACL injury on the tonic. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. Delayed medical treatments have become a widespread trend in Ontario, with patients in chronic pain waiting 10 to 20 months between a GP referral and orthopedic surgery. To beat the waiting game and regain their quality of life, Ontarians are opting for private treatment solutions and traveling abroad for their health. What a lot of them don't know is that they can find treatment options in Montreal. ICS Clinic offers quick and affordable treatment solutions by some of the most sought-after specialists in the country, without the need for a referral. For more information, visit icsmontreal.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Dr. Khalil Masri, is an orthopedic surgeon at the Montreal Institute for Special Surgery, a private clinic specializing in orthopedic surgery by arthroscopy of the shoulder, elbow, hip, and knee. Over the years, Dr. Masri has gained extensive experience in sports medicine, reconstructive surgery, and knee arthroscopy. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm fine, Jamie. How are you? So last week, we discussed torn meniscus. Yep. Today, we're going to talk about a really serious injury, and that is an ACL tear, right? Yep. Yes, of course. 
And I know that your clinic treats a lot of professional athletes and Olympians even. Yes. Can you tell me more about the ACL and what it all means and how athletes deal with this potentially crippling issue? Well, the ACL is a very, very important uh, ligament inside the knee. Actually, we have two of them. There is the ACL and the PCL for posterior. Well, ACL is for anterior cruciate ligament. Right. Uh, we, have, we also have two ligaments on the outside of the knee, the, the collaterals. So right. The ACL is one of the most important ones. And unfortunately, it's the one that, is, that gets injured the most. And uh, once it tears, the potential of it healing by itself is very low. And that's why it's a very serious injury. Right. I think, you know, I, I watch a lot of football and basketball. It's, you know, you, when you see tackles or when people land awkwardly, you know, they can, I guess it's a, a twisting motion and, and they can just blow out the ACL in no time, right? Yeah, of course. Most of the time it's a twisting motion. It's the foot that stays put on the ground and the knee keeps twisting. And at some point the, the ACL is going to take all the, all the pressure and uh, it will get damaged. You can also injure it if you have a hyperextension injury. Uh, sometimes patients, while landing, if you play basketball or volleyball, for instance, yep. you can get injured without the twisting motion, just having the hyperextension of the knee and the, the, the ACL could pop at that time. Yes. So hyperextension is when, when it sort of bends awkwardly forward? Is that, is yeah, well, well, actually, when it bends backwards, like it goes on. Uh, flexion is when you get your foot to your bum. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, extension is the, other, the opposite side. Right, okay. Yeah. All right. So how do you prevent it? You know, when you're playing a contact sport, I, you know, I think there's high risk of it. But is there anything that we can do? Well, actually, uh, of course, there, is, there are many things we can do to prevent this injury. You have to keep a consistent training regimen. It's very important to, you know, not to be like what we call the weekend warrior who decides one day to, okay, let's go uh, for uh, alpine skiing, let's say, or let's, let's play hockey without even uh, warming up or not, without being ready for that. Uh, you can do uh, strengthening exercises for quadriceps and hamstrings, which are the muscles around the knee that will make the knee uh, less prone to injury. So, so what sort of things are we talking about? Are we looking at squats and lunges and things yeah, like that? Yeah, it could be squats and lunges. It could be a real program that you can have with, uh, with a physiotherapist or a sports specialist. You can have uh, you know, something very specific to the sports that you do. So if you're a skier, for example, and you decide to, uh, you know, like you're going to ski like uh, every weekend, right. it will be a good idea to start working out uh, maybe a month or two before just to make sure that your muscles are ready for that. So it's, it depends on the, on the sports that you, you're going to do. Uh, you can even uh, learn proper landing techniques because sometimes uh, the injury would happen when you, when you land. Uh, you can do proprioceptive uh, exercises, and these are very important. These are exercises you can do at the gym. Uh, so this way you have less of a chance. But of course, if you have a major injury or a major uh, mechanism to product that injury, it's going to happen even if you're fit. So that's what you see with professional athletes. Right. And I think this time of year when people, you know, the weather finally turns nice in Canada, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we have two seasons, so, you know, <laughs> we have cold and allergy season and, and now we're getting into allergy season. So everybody's outside and they just want to take advantage of the good weather. And I think that's when the injuries start because they haven't built up to it yeah, properly. Exactly. Exactly. They're not ready for it. And uh, they, they, you know, everyone wants to exercise it. Uh, and that's uh, at this point, if you're not ready, you are, you are going to get injured. Right. And it, so it's not just athletes that, that this happens to. I mean, it's men, women, children, uh, elderly, it's everybody, right? Oh, yeah. It could happen at any age. And uh, I've seen patients as, uh, as young as 10-year-olds and I've seen patients uh, 70-year-olds. But of course, we're not going to operate on everyone. Right. But uh, it could happen to anyone, yes. Okay. So how do we know if we have an ACL injury? 
Well, uh, you have to have a trauma. It, it doesn't happen. Uh, last week we discussed meniscus. Sometimes right. you can have a tear without uh, trauma, but uh, if when you have the ACL tear, usually uh, there is uh, an injury. A patient would say that uh, they have heard a popping noise at the time of the injury. They will have trouble standing up after the injury. If you're skiing, for example, and you, you fall and you see my, my ski didn't, didn't um, loosen from my fixation, right. uh, you try to, to ski, you're not going to be able to ski. You, you go, you're going to feel that your knee, uh, your knee is going to give way. There could be some swelling. Sometimes there is a lot of swelling. Sometimes there isn't a lot. So uh, the diagnosis sometimes is difficult when uh, it just happens because uh, X-ray will be normal. Uh, you would see a general practitioner or a physiotherapist who is going to treat you for a minor sprain while uh, it is not a minor sprain. It is an ACL injury. So it depends on the type of injury that you have, but most of the time patients are not okay after they fall, their fall. Okay, so are you saying that, that a GP or a physiotherapist may not even be able to diagnose a problem? Yeah, well, of course, uh, sometimes even us orthopedic surgeons, it's not very clear when you see the patient, like maybe the day after or the, the, the two days after, uh, because... Um, Curiously, sometimes it's not even swollen. There is some swelling, but not a lot. And you can suspect the injury, but most of the time you, you won't see it if you, uh, if you don't do a thorough follow-up on the patient. And if you suspect this injury because of the history of the patient or the way he's, uh, he's telling the, the, how, the, how the injury happened, you have to do an X-ray, simple X-ray, just to make sure that there is no fracture. And then you have to ask for the, the MRI, which is the exam that will, uh, will diagnose it. So an MRI is a surefire way of determining whether or not you have an ACL injury, yeah, correct? Yeah, the, the MRI is the gold standard, yes, for, for diagnosis. Okay, so let's say we're unfortunate enough to have an ACL tear. Is there any way to rehab it or do we have to have surgery? No, uh, you don't have to have surgery all the time. Of course, the, the younger you are, uh, the more uh, frequently we need to operate. Uh, it depends also on the type of sports you're doing. If you're young and you are a hockey player or a skier, chances are that you are going to have to have surgery. There are some centers in Europe and some, some centers in the States and even Canada uh, who are doing early repair instead of doing late reconstruction. Hmm. But um, unfortunately, these patients are not seen early because when you fall, you're going to go see your doctor. The doctor may, might take some time before seeing you. Then uh, sometimes they don't diagnose the tears. They're going to send you to... Uh, to physiotherapy and uh, sometimes it's the physiotherapist who's uh, diagnosing the tear so that's sending two to the orthopedic surgeon and this will take some time uh, right. and by that time it's not an early diagnosis uh, you're probably been living with it for months right yeah exactly so you miss the opportunity if the ligament is repairable sometimes we can repair it it depends on the type of tear and uh, usually we have a four weeks bracket if you if you think of of repairing it. So if you're missing on that period, uh, then you, you go to reconstructive surgery, which is okay. That's what we do for most of our patients. But you know, there is, a, there is a study conducted by the Fraser Institute that showed that in Canada, patients wait an average of 40 weeks before the GP referral. Wow. between the GP referral sorry, and an evaluation with the orthopedic surgeon. And then once you see the orthopedic surgeons, you're going to wait maybe an extra few months or maybe a year or so before having the surgery done. And uh, unfortunately, the day of surgery, you might be cancelled because you can, you know, there will be more uh, emergencies and stuff like that. So it is a very serious injury. You have to address it early than earlier than later, because if you don't, you 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 are going to damage your cartilage and even your meniscus. And once you get to surgery, uh, the chances of rehab to a full recovery will be less. 
and if you do it early. Okay, and, and I think a few moments ago you were, you were kind of alluding to the fact when you're younger, you would probably get surgery. Yes. When you're older, not. Is that because older people tend to be less active? Yeah, that's one reason. And uh, curiously enough, when uh, the patients are, uh, sometimes we see patients for 50-year-olds and, and older that, mm-hmm. uh, that get injured. And these patients tend to heal better than the younger ones without really? surgery. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that's why when you see those patients, you don't have to do surgery right away. You can uh, go to rehab. And especially surgery with uh, less predictable, sorry, for uh, the group age of 50 and over. Sometimes you can have a very stable knee, but you can have a stiffer knee. So you go from a knee that gives way to a knee that's very stiff and patients are not happy. So you have to be careful with the 50-year-olds and, and over. Uh, I've done many surgeries on 50-year-olds and, and over, but it depends on every case is different. So you have to follow them to make sure that they need surgery. And if they, they can manage everyday life without having their knee giving way, and sometimes they could wear a brace for some types of sports, like, sports, sorry, for like, phys- like um, skiing or uh, hockey, then you don't need to do surgery on them. God bless you. I just turned 53. Oh. And you've, you've given me the, the first example of how that is an advantage over younger yeah, people. Actually, it is. But you've uh, made my day. <laughs> Jamie, it doesn't mean you won't get operated, but uh, you, you have a better chance of healing than the 20-year-old. You see? <laughs> you see? That's why it's important to listen to this show. You find out the advantages of aging. Yeah, right. <laughs> Okay, so what's recovery look like for most patients after after surgery? Well, once we do it, there are different techniques for surgery. You can do uh, either the patellar tendon reconstructive surgery, you can use your, your hamstrings, you can do the quadriceps tendon, we can even do an allograph, which is a cadaveric uh, allograph from Emma Quebec. Recovery is long. Uh, usually you're on crutches for about 10 days, then we start phys- physiotherapy three, four times a week for the next two months. At two months, you stop physio, you keep doing your exercises, so either at home or at a gym. At six months, you can go back to regular sports, wearing a brace to protect the, the, the graft. And at one year, we, you're finished with the brace, you go back to normal, and patients, if surgery is well done and patients does, the patient does his physio regularly and exercises, your chances are that you're gonna recover close to 100%. Fantastic. That's great news. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Jamie, for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to you again. Me as well. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Alamax Canada is the company that delivers real, bioactive, stabilized allicin. Using only the freshest garlic from Spain, Alamax is the trusted source for a high-quality and effective allicin supplement. The manufacturers of Alamax have dedicated their time to researching this fascinating plant and all of its antimicrobial and antibacterial benefits. To fight infection and stay well, take Alamax. For more information, visit Alamax.ca. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Megan Horsley is a registered holistic nutritionist, blog writer, and recipe developer. She's passionate about helping her clients discover their best selves with a holistic approach to their well-being, with delicious food, 
movement, and thoughts. Megan loves witnessing the transformations that unfold. She's a knowledgeable and entertaining writer, and she wrote a great article in the June issue of Tonic all about lifestyle choices impacting longevity. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Here's the question I've been dying to ask you, <laughs> because when I heard your topic and what does a spring chicken like you, what does a spring chicken like you know about longevity? <laughs> What, what, what is what is question. the source of this knowledge? It's a great question. Well, I will say, um, being the baby of my family, I've had uh, the advantage of observing all okay, of my family members and their lifestyle choices just from a personal experience. But the interesting thing about holistic nutrition is that we learn about life stages and how to positively impact your health with food, through food for the most right. part, at each life stage. And so one of those stages, obviously, we talked about the senior years. How do you define those from a holistic nutritionist perspective, what you've learned? What is that cohort? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. So, I mean, if we were to talk specifically for women, that would be, you know, moving past menopause and moving into that next stage of life and having more of a focus on how you can prolong your longevity or prolong your life based on looking at your really your your family history. So looking at how you can, maybe it means making different changes than what your right. other family members have made um, okay. to impact your health. And I mean, that's that's the main part of it. Right. right? So, so like if you're looking at perimenopause or menopause, you're probably looking at mid to late 40s through your 50s, Yeah, and right? that's when we start talking about osteoporosis, right? right? That's when that can start popping up for menopausal women. And so, okay, looking at calcium levels in the body, looking at blood pressure, looking at what's going on with the parathyroid, like all of these things are, are really important if we're looking at that stage of life. Right. And even for men, I mean, I don't know if you believe in the concept of andropause, but, you know, like men, as they age, the, their needs change too from a dietary perspective. Oh, right? for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think I think uh, <laughs> there's, there's definitely a lot to it. And I think right. I've, you know, hopefully proven myself. No, <laughs> you didn't have to prove yourself. I was just I was just wondering. It wasn't from it wasn't from your personal experience, but rather from your education no, and, course, and your experience course. as a practitioner. Yes. So, yes. OK, so let's talk about this, because there's interesting things that people can do through their lifestyle to help them age more gracefully, right? Yeah, so I, I decided to pull up some Stats Canada numbers just so we can Oh, have you an brought idea. the numbers. Brought the numbers. So we have a 2011 census um, that goes over the centenarians that we have in Canada. Right. Um, so thankfully, we are on an incline with those numbers. So do you want to live to 100? I don't know if I do. I think so. Do you? Okay. I think so. You're going to tell us how to do I it, I mean, though. I see it as a challenge. I, I definitely see it as a challenge because... We know that in North America, we are more susceptible to disease. And so, again, based on our lifestyle choices. Right. And so I see that as a personal challenge to actually live longer than what the stats say that I will. Okay, so let's, let's, let's go back to the stats. Yeah, then. What, what so are they telling us? Let's go back to 2001. We had 3,700 people who were registered as centenarian. In the so country? 100 or more. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 4,600 in 2006. 5,800 in 2011. Wow. Right? So that's a lot just within that 10-year span. Do you think that does that correspond with the baby boomer? Like the baby boom? Was it just there were more in the cohort? Yeah, baby boomers, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I can give you the link for that. But basically on that centenarian page of Stats Canada, they talk about the baby boomers and, and First World War and how that impacted everything. Okay. Uh, it's fascinating. So, yep. But the other thing to note here is that Japan is known as having the most centenarians in the world. Right. The oldest population in the world. Um, so they have 37 centenarians per 100,000 wow. uh, people. 
right? And then then we have other countries, France, Italy, United Kingdom, they have higher rates than Canada, again. So so what are we doing in Canada that, you know, that's... Or what what aren't we doing? What aren't we doing? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what what did you come up with? What did you find? Um, So there are a lot of different things, but John Robbins, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, he is a well-known author and researcher of centenarians. And he was actually next in line to take over the Baskin-Robbins empire. Oh, wow. Yes. And he decided that he wanted no part of that, mostly because he saw what was going on um, well, in both, the United both, States. Both the founders actually developed severe illnesses. Right, I don't know if you know that. Very it, it died very young. Very the Baskin young. and Robbins yes. empire was built on, on illness of yes. real people. Yeah. So he took that as a personal challenge to see what, what he could do to positively impact North America's health. Um, so he did a lot of research on centenarians. Um, and what he found was by doing a review of the research that has been done on them. Um, he looked at four main groups. So we have the Hunza people of, of a small region in Pakistan, the Okinawans of Okinawa and Japan, yep. Yep. Um, Abkhazians, a small region in the northwestern part of Georgia, and then we have the Vilka Bambans in southern Ecuador. Wow. So four diverse groups of people. And he found that the keys were social integration, diet, of course, and their activity levels. And those had a major impact on their life satisfaction and longevity. So let's let's start with the first one. Let's start with social integration. So you know, unfortunately, in, like we're known for in North America, our retirement homes and and we have. I mean, very generally speaking, right? We have a different approach to aging with our relatives than other parts of the world do. So right. we see aging as as a negative thing. We don't appreciate it. And we don't necessarily, again, generally speaking, have the same respect for elders as other parts of the world do. Right. Who would integrate them into their families and perhaps take care of them personally. Absolutely. Have them stay in their homes longer. Yes. So on the topic of social integration, I mean, in order for us to experience longevity, it's extremely important that we are integrated in our families um, and that we feel like we belong, that we feel like we have a purpose still right. in our families. Even even with our age, if we're not necessarily able to cook meals anymore for our families, that we're, we still feel like we're contributing our knowledge. Um, right. Family history, Family culture. history, yes, yes. So it's extremely important that, you, that you're still involved and yeah. engaged. So not even necessarily with family members, um, with friends too. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that as we age, our you know, our friends, our close friends will age with us too. And, and they may even die before us. Right. So it's really important to make sure that we're constantly looking to maintain relationships, whether it's by making new friends, maybe that means volunteering after retirement so that you're still involved in different communities. Maybe that means getting more involved in religious groups, Right. right? You know, those or, or community-based initiatives, or taking up a hobby or a skill that yes, requires you to go like like, yes. like doing band or playing a game like uh, bridge or yes, mahjong. Euchre. Exactly. <laughs> no, but it also helps you be become mentally engaged, which is another absolutely, which, which is another pillar of, of graceful aging. Of course, yeah, you want to keep sharp, absolutely. So the social integration, right? We we've talked about that. Another really important aspect of longevity is diet, what you're eating. And this is your wheelhouse. This is my wheelhouse, yes. Um, So for these four groups that uh, John Robbins looked at... um, they generally survive on a plant-based, nutrient-dense diet. So lots of fermented foods, cultured dairy products, um, minimal meat, although I will say 
John Robbins is a vegan, so he has had he has come under some fire, you know, right. by minimizing the amount of meat that these groups actually are eating. Uh, when they are eating meat, they're eating uh, snout to tail. They're eating. They're not just eating the prime oh, yes. cuts. They're yes. e- they're eating. Like they're eating all of the animal, Everything. but they're eating less of it than we do. In less North of it, yes, and smaller portions. Right. That's that's the major take home here. If we were to look at how we eat, again, generally speaking, in North America, we have huge portions. Again, we we've talked about you know distractions while we eat on this show. So if you're eating in front of the computer while you're at work, while you're on your phone, you're not engaged. And let's say you're at work, you're not engaged in the lunchroom talking to your coworkers, where you're a little more aware of the portions that you're eating, right? And even again at home when you're eating with your family like does that still happen for a lot of us does in my house good we have dinner together every night excellent we we try to and there are certain days of the week that are mandated that everybody has to be there for dinner have to be Jamie that's amazing well it's really important it's very important yes and do you find too that during during those meals you're more aware of of the amount of food you're eating how much you're enjoying your food right that enjoyment of of eating is different for me culturally Friday night dinner uh, you know as a Jew like you know it's it's the Sabbath we aren't necessarily religious but it's an opportunity to just shunt aside the work and just think about you know the family and just have conversations that are organic. So it's a much longer meal than perhaps other nights of the week, but it's to my mind it's it's my favorite it's my favorite time of the week. That's beautiful. Plus I get really drunk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, 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 well. <laughs> <laughs> I threw you there, didn't I? But it's the truth. But it's actually okay. Uh, you hey, know, yeah. it's hey, okay hey, once moderation. in a while. Friday counts as moderation. Yeah, yeah. every Friday, sure. <laughs> it does um, in my book. <laughs> so the other key thing about diet is that a lot of the food is coming from the food that they're growing. So last month we talked about the the benefits of gardening and growing right. your own food, and how when you're eating food that is that fresh picked that day from the right. garden, you're benefiting from more nutrients, right? 100%. Um, so yeah, one thing to notice is that they are actually growing and, and eating their own food. And a lot of the food preparation practices are something that we're just starting to adopt in North America now. So soaking and sprouting our legumes, right? right? Eating them raw from sprouted. Yep. Um, it, it's amazing. And this is something that tons of people do. Yep. Right? The other thing too is... Drinking mineral-rich water. We've talked a lot about water, yep. uh, but making sure that spring water is the focus. Um, or if you don't have access to that, drinking remineralized water. Right. Right. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. And we didn't get to the mobility, but if people are interested, they can read your article in the magazine or online. Yes. And we'll provide the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much, Jamie. We're going to hear back from you next month, right? Yes. Yes. See you soon. We've got to take a short break, but we will be right back to discuss entertaining guests who have food allergies or preferences on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. 
It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over five years. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife, Naomi. Hi, honey. Hi. So I think today's topic really speaks to what it means to be hospitable, to be a good host. How to deal with guests who have food allergies or preferences when you're hosting, let's say, a party or a dinner. Because it's tricky. You know, a lot of people have food allergies and, you know, you want to be good, right? Yes, I think there's a greater awareness of these issues now. And perhaps, I don't know if this is true, but greater, more allergies, more, you know, more vegetarians, more vegans. Yes, people are getting sicker. It's a good thing. (laughs) No, it's just, it's both. I don't know. I don't know if there was many people who are gluten-free, you know. I think they're more identified now. So I, I think people who may have, you know, used to have a delicate stomach, now can pinpoint it as, oh, I have a gluten intolerance or there are certain foods that, you know, I don't know if it's an allergy, but, you know, they they can't digest as easily. So, yes. Yeah. And I think there's just more general awareness that it is a good thing to accommodate your guests. And sometimes it's necessary to accommodate your guests. Well, is it? Is is it the responsibility of the host to accommodate everybody? Is, Is that the way it rolls? So, yes, I think so. First of all, it's a joint responsibility. So if you have a health condition or something, even a strong preference, like you're vegetarian and you're coming for Thanksgiving dinner, then you really should identify that to the host. Because if you don't say anything, then you're going to be there and everybody's going to be uncomfortable. You might as well say it in advance. Now, I'm not talking about, for example, my dislike for cilantro. Yes. I don't think that that's legit for no. me to tell somebody, please don't serve cilantro with your meal because right. I don't like it. I'm talking about real, you know, I don't eat meat or I can't eat gluten or I don't eat dairy or whatever it is, or I'm allergic to right. fish or nuts. Well, I think a part of the difficulty is it's all being conflated, right? I mean, there's people who have serious food allergies, they're anaphylactic. And if they have certain foods, it's a serious health issue that could even result, God forbid, in death. And then at the other end of the spectrum are picky eaters, right? And But it's not all the same, but you still have to address it in, in similar ways, I think. You do. And I think when people are having a big party, I think it actually, in some ways, it's easier because they'll often you know, include some vegetarian options or options of different kinds um, because they've got an, a number of different of dishes or right. canapes that they're offering. Right. But when you're having somebody for dinner or a small dinner, you may not think about it, and you should. And it may be that it's your family and you, you know, you're you aware of what everybody eats and doesn't eat. But if you're inviting somebody you don't know, then you should really ask. You know, it's probably not a bad idea if, if you're hosting you know, a dinner or something, just to have as part of your protocol, finding out whether your guests have any food allergies or foods they can't eat. It just helps you make plan, if you're a planner, to plan better, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm a planner. If yes, I if I made a dinner and invited somebody and then found out they didn't eat it, I'd be mad. You know, right. I'd feel like I wasted all this time and then I'd feel bad about it and I'd be scrambling. I remember a few years ago, we went, uh, we were invited over to brunch to right. relatives. Yes. And well, they were relatives, they were younger and they'd never cooked for us before. And I just somehow forgot to mention or assume that they knew about our son's allergies. He's allergic to fish and poppy seeds and nuts. And, and he's anaphylactic. And he, which it's a strong allergy. So all of a sudden I realized in that morning, no, I didn't tell them about it. So I texted them and said, you know the Brown's allergic to all these things, right? 
And then I got back up, um, hmm. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what we're serving. <laughs> yes, as it turned out, they were serving smoked salmon, poppy seed bagels, and they made cake with walnuts in it. I couldn't believe it. You know, They, they hit they the were, trifecta. They did. They were trying to be good hosts. They went to all kinds of trouble. Meanwhile, we show up there. It was too late, and I think... I think Bram maybe had some, he can eat peanuts, so he, he had some peanut butter. Well, he's happy butter. to eat peanut butter. Is there a happy ending to this story? He's, he's okay with the peanut butter but sandwich. It was but, awkward. But it was awkward. And it was totally avoidable, and it was totally my fault. Like, I should have raised it because I know, you know, I should have thought about it and, and that this yeah. might have been an issue. Right. Okay, so let's talk about, let's assume you're a host. You know, what's one approach that you could take in dealing with an issue like this? Well, assuming that you know, right. you know, so that you're aware of what, what the preferences are, there are lots of options. So you have two basic options. One is that you, you, know, you just make the whole meal something that everybody can eat. And then the other is that you offer the person who has the restriction something different, you know, okay. so that they can eat something. So to use the Thanksgiving example, you serve turkey to a vegetarian, but you make sure that the person who is vegetarian has their own main meal. Like it's right. not okay to invite somebody who's vegetarian and vegan and give them lettuce. Side dishes. Side right. dishes. You know, they have to have then then you need to create something that is substance, you know, some sort of protein. Protein or even a vegetarian tart or something with mushrooms, something that is um you know, a, it can be a side dish for other people, but a main dish for them. Right. And and I suppose the the pros to that approach, which is making a separate main, let's call it, or or, or alternatives is that, you know, if you had an idea in mind for the type of meal that you wanted to put together, like if you really, really, really wanted to make a smoked turkey, for example, mm -hmm. then you're, you're still able to do that. You can still have the meal that you wanted to have and you're accommodating and welcoming somebody who can't partake in that food. The downside is, of course, it's more work, right? Yes. And the other thing to remember is that it depends what it is. So if right. it's an allergy, that's something like fish, you really... I would say can't serve fish to everybody else but the person who right. is allergic to fish. Because, because if somebody's anaphylactic to it, you know, having the smell in the atmosphere could trigger an allergic reaction. Like it is serious. I think the issue is people don't appreciate how dangerous the food allergies really can be. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if it's a food preference, then it becomes something a little bit different. Right. You can put the cilantro on the side for the person who doesn't like cilantro and that's right. fine. It's no big deal. Right. Okay. And then the, the other option you talked about are the main options is to create actually a meal that where everybody's eating the same thing and it accommodates the person's allergies, which is probably easier to execute when it's a smaller group. It is. But there's lots of, you know, when I put my mind to it, because I've had to deal with this before, I could come up with lots of ideas about meals that are in fact seemingly, you know, dairy-free, gluten-free, or at least partly gluten-free, and vegetarian. So, for example, you could go Asian. So Asian, you could have something that's baked, you know, some sort of tofu dish, which you could grill or, you know, make teriyaki, or you could make fish, depending on what the person eats. You can serve it on rice or buckwheat noodles, because those are both gluten-free. You can add roasted vegetables on the side. You can put nuts or not, depending on that. So, like, so that's one option that really... Everybody can probably eat that. Another option might be Mexican. So you have a taco bar with different fillings. And right. so you have something that's got black beans and rice. For somebody who's vegetarian, you could have cheese as a filling to add or not. You could have shredded meat to add or not. And then you've got 
pickled onions and you know chopped up vegetables and uh, various things to add like that. So that's something that you know corn tortillas, which are also gluten free. Right. That's something that can accommodate a lot of different diets. I recently got and reviewed a Mexican book called Tu Casa Mi Casa. And it had lots of options. Like we made chili rellenos, which were roasted poblano chili stuffed with black beans or uh, beans and um, cheese. And it was delicious. It was really good and interesting. And substantial. Yes. Far more filling than I I thought. Another idea. You could have, um, you know, because it's summer, so we're talking about barbecue. You could have a number of different things on the grills. You could have meat, vegetables, tofu again, fish. Uh, you could make a quinoa salad because quinoa is got protein, gluten-free, and you could put vegetables and beans in it. You could make potato salad. Potatoes seem to be pretty easy to digest. You could have them um, you know, with a vinegar dressing. So no, if you've got vegans, no, no eggs, no mayo. You could make a pasta salad with roasted tomatoes and basil. We've been making that before, and you can add cheese or not. You put that on the side, and that's a great summer dish. There's also lots of dessert options, too, really. Like, we have a great vegan chocolate chip cookie recipe, right. which I was skeptical of. But everybody who has the cookie is amazed that it's vegan, which, you know, is sort of a backhanded compliment, but in fact, yeah. they really are good cookies. I think I was tempted to make them, to try them once. The The one thing about them are you have to make them 24 hours in advance. Like, you mix it together, and then it has to right. sit in the fridge. It's by... Ovenly, Ovenly chocolate chip cookies. You can get it on the internet. They're really, really good cookies, and they're vegan. So they have flour in them, but they are vegan. And you know, you can. So the good thing about making them in advance is that you, you know, you don't. It's not a last minute thing. You just bake them on the same day. I also make a great lemon layer cake, which is gluten free. It's made with almond flour and dairy free. Uh, so you wouldn't think that lemon curd could be made dairy free, but it's made with it is made with eggs but with olive oil. And it's really great. Everybody loves this lemon cake that I make. Right. So just like so lots of different ideas that you could accommodate either, you know, somebody entirely has dietary restrictions or or partially. Do you have any cookbook recommendations that you find yourself going to to help accommodate with some of these food allergies or sensitivities? Yeah, definitely. So I'm finding that, you know, there is a greater awareness in cookbooks so that they will often have a note, you know, this is gluten-free, this has nuts, or here's how you can make it nut-free, you know, substitute sunflower seeds instead of nuts, that kind right. of thing. There's a number of vegan cookbooks I have. We're not vegan, but no. they have very good flavorful recipes. Well, the truth of the matter is if somebody, very few people can't eat vegetables. So like it's, it's, it's a safe choice. If, if you mm-hmm. put together some some good vegetable dishes, you're probably going to be able to accommodate most people. Even the keto people are, are having vegetables with their meat. So that's probably a good source. Anyways. Yeah. So, Oh, How She Glows, the Angela Lydon book. She has a few books. She also has a lot of keys. So it's vegan, but a lot of you know notes about different restrictions. The First Mess, which is also Canadian by Laura Wright vegan cookbook with a lot of um, really good recipes and uh, accommodating a lot of restrictions. Flavor Flowers is a really neat baking book. It's all about wheat-free baking. And so it's divided by flowers, different flowers, and anything you can think of for desserts they cover. Not diet. Everything has butter and eggs, but different flowers. So that was another one I really liked. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. But when you come back next month, we're going to discuss uh, the most underrated meal of all, and that's lunch, right? Yes. 
Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can listen to the show online at zoomer.ca. And you can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and side links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on Facebook at The Tonic Talk Show or at Jamie Busson on Instagram. For great articles written by Megan Horsley and Naomi Busson, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss aging from a public health perspective. We'll talk about hot topics in lung health and the real health risks of electromagnetic fields. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.